Hello and welcome to Beyond Borders, your fortnightly podcast from Cambridge Refugee Scholarship Campaign. Here, we make the human case for widening higher education to refugees around the world, speaking to guests, hearing lived experiences and highlighting current events. This podcast explores the barriers that refugees face to higher education and asks how we can overcome them. Welcome to our third episode, A Pandemic Beyond Borders. The pandemic has brought challenges and difficulties into all of our lives, but certain groups of people have been made particularly vulnerable by the last year. And today's episode is devoted to working out what it has been like to live as a refugee in the UK. The last thing I would want is to bring any more unwanted news of the pandemic to any of you. So this is a shorter episode with only one guest, in which I hope to share with you some of the headlines of the UK refugee landscape over the course of the pandemic. Today, I'm speaking to Leila, Deputy Director at West London Welcome, a charity which supports asylum seekers and refugees in the area. Over the last year, the charity's work has to some extent been dictated by the pandemic and by the government's management of refugees through it. The discussion is extremely current and relates to events that are still unfolding, and hopefully this should give a better idea of where we are one year on in lockdown Britain and its refugee community. So I'm here with Leila. Hi Leila, thanks for joining us. Hi Fred, thanks so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about what it is you do and some of the things that you're involved in? Yeah, so I'm the deputy director at a small charity in London called West London Welcome, and we're based in Hammersmith in West London. We're a community centre for refugees, asylum seekers, and other migrants, including people who are undocumented uh, or have insecure immigration statuses in any way. Uh, And we support people by bringing them into our community where they can make friends, have delicious food together, take English classes, get legal advice, um, and really feel safe um, for the first time often in a long time um, uh, in a place where they can build trust with people. Um, and share stories and really make friends in the here and now rather than having to relive lots of traumas in their past. What, how would you describe what has happened to the refugee community and asylum seeker community in the UK over the course of the pandemic? Mm. So uh, pre-pandemic, um, we would support people who were either refugees or migrants, or in particular people who were seeking asylum, who were usually um, having to survive on around five pounds a day from the government. And if you're seeking asylum, you don't have the right to work in the UK, and you also don't have any access to benefits. So you have what's called no recourse to public funds as a condition. So that means that you are entirely dependent on what the Home Office give you, which was around a fiver a day, plus any help from charities. Um, But when the pandemic hit, um, for various reasons, including that everybody had to be housed um, and off the streets under the everyone in um, condition organised by the government, um, but also because the Home Office historically has not had enough housing, um, lots of people who were seeking asylum, um, around 10,000 people in the UK, were housed in hotels. Um, And in West London we have many hotels with thousands of people inside those hotels seeking asylum 
And if you're in a hotel, you get given um, sort of three meals, airplane style meals um, and eight pounds a week. So you've gone from about five or a day to eight pounds a week. Um, and that's what you have to survive on. So um, given the number of people um, that required support um, and the, the very small amount that they have to live on, um, the situation for asylum seekers in particular has been really dire. Um, people often also, if they were um, you know, lucky enough to have the right to work, if they say have refugee status, lost their jobs during the pandemic or couldn't work. So were then uh, heavily dependent on benefits. Um, if you have English as a second language and you're generally living in poverty, which many people who come to our centre are, you are again heavily dependent on charity to survive. So we found that uh, for people with a wide range of immigration statuses, the pandemic only exacerbated those pre-existing struggles that they had. Um, and so we had to really step up um, and entirely change our, our sort of um, approach to supporting people. We really had to um, make sure that lots and lots of people, thousands of people around um, us and other charities had to support thousands of other people who we previously hadn't supported before um, in and around London. Um, and it, it was a huge challenge um, and people were in great distress because they, uh, they'd gone from a situation where they were out in the community with all kinds of informal support in place to a situation where they had almost no support at all. Yeah. And of course, one thing that's been happening more and more frequently over the development of the pandemic is people being moved mm. um, with very, very little notice at all. Um, mm. Could you speak a little bit to, you know, some of those stories of people who have been moved either to the barracks in Kent or to other random parts of the country and the impact that has on them. Yeah. Yeah, so you're talking about dispersal, what the Home Office will call dispersal. Um, so you are supposed to, if you are seeking asylum in the UK um, and you are moved from one accommodation to the other, get five days notice in the form of a letter um, we've never um, had a member of our centre, an asylum-seeking person, ever receive five days' notice. Um, we know people who are given around an hour's notice, maybe two hours' notice before they're moved. So um, we have situations where people are given entire families, highly vulnerable families, um, including you know women who have experienced trafficking, um, an hour, two hours' notice to move from London to Liverpool, a cab will pull up outside their accommodation in West London to pick them up. Um, a, a very common scenario is that people are not told where they're going. Um, and in fact, that's to the extent where if you ask the driver, where am I being taken? And that driver will often not tell you where you're being taken. And that's actually... Why do you um, think that is? Why do you think that's happening? Yeah, we think it's to do with the idea that if you are given information about where you're going and it's very far away from where you're currently living that you may not want to move there and so this is a way for the home office to ensure that you will go where they've decided that you'll go and um, of course as a charity we believe that that's a really inhumane way to treat somebody and that in particular if you're highly vulnerable and may have experienced trafficking and modern slavery in the past that ironically, 
you're actually experiencing something quite similar to what you may have experienced in the past, which is getting into a car and somebody refusing to tell you where they're taking you. So that's a re-traumatizing experience. Um, and, you know, in, in you, you mentioned the barracks. So we supported two men who were in the barracks. Um, they were living in West London. They were very suddenly, with very short uh, notice, taken to the barracks, um, which are former military barracks in Folkestone and Kent, um, which were 28 people to a dormitory. Um, you know, uh, these are disused places that are re-traumatizing for people who have experienced war or torture in the past. Um, and both of these men um, immediately experienced um, in me mental health deterioration. We were really worried for them and we supported them to return to West London, found them alternative accommodation in the community. Um, but when people are leaving these barracks, they're given around 15 minutes notice that we've heard. So charity supporting people in Folkestone report a 15 minute notice period. So can you imagine you're in the UK and you've you've managed to make it here, sometimes across the Mediterranean. Um, you know, there are no safe routes to get to the UK at, at the moment. So you, you have no other option but to take this highly dangerous, life threatening journey here with your entire life belongings. And then you're moved into an army barracks, former army barracks, um, where you've survived your time there. And then you're given 15 minutes to move and, and collect up all your things. Well, people are highly anxious. They often leave lots of things behind. And we think this is no way to treat some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Absolutely. Um, what do you think in our local areas we can do to engage with these issues? Because, of course, um, you and I have worked in West London together, um, but there are you know, this, this problem is duplicated in various urban areas across the country. Um, where can people start if they want to engage with these issues? Mm. So there are a few campaigns um, that are uh, national um, campaigns that support um, people with varying immigration statuses who are affected by the hostile environment. The first is a refugee action campaign called Lift the Ban, which is in support of asylum seekers having the right to work in the country. We find that this is um, uh, something that makes people particularly vulnerable to destitution. If you can't work, um, you have no way of making your own money, of course. Um, the other condition that people are, are up against is the no recourse to public funds condition, which means people who again don't have citizenship or don't have a regularized immigration status like refugee status, don't have access to benefits like universal credit. So during the pandemic, um, thousands of people were on universal credit, um, some of whom had worked their whole lives. So um, you have no fallback, no safety net. And again, you're, you're really um, likely to become destitute on the streets because you have no recourse to public funds. So there's a brilliant campaigning happening um, and I'll send you Freddie links afterwards for people to look at um, on that issue to scrap no recourse to public funds. If you're in a university, there's a brilliant organization called Unis Resist Border Controls who are campaigning against the hostile environment um, on behalf of international students in particular in universities who much like other people affected by the hostile environment have no recourse to public funds. Um, they can work 20 hours a week, but they're often uh, in really insecure jobs. 
Um, and because they have no safety net in the form of benefits, if they lose that job, they're really rife um, for exploitation. Um, and they also used, um, we were talking about this earlier, um, as, as described by um, Unis Resist Border Controls, um, in really exploitative ways by universities. So people, um, you know, who are international students are often charged extortionate fees um, and then they have to be, you know, reported on by the university to the home office to ensure that they're, you know, clocking up the, the right amount of hours. There's all kinds of ways in which these students are being exploited um, and are not being treated humanely. So, yeah, that's a great group to join. I also think that Student Action for Refugees is great. Um, it sounds like, Freddie, you've got your own thing going, which sounds amazing. Um, but I, I was Vice President of Student Action for Refugees when I was at uni, and I thought it was a brilliant way to just get some volunteering experience and understand um, how people are treated when they are here seeking asylum or undocumented um, or have refugee status and how difficult that can be. Um, yeah, lots of things to get stuck into. Those yeah. sound great. Thank you for recommending those. Um, on an institutional level, what would you mm. say universities can do better, by and large, across the UK? Mm. So, first of all, um, I used to run something called the Unaccompanied Minors Project at the Jewish Council for Racial Equality, which was supporting young people who are refugees or asylum seekers um, or other migrants who um, are between the ages of 15 and 25. So some of those would end up applying for university um, and getting into university. Um, and um, some of them had really positive experiences, others not so much. Um, I think that there's um, a real lack of understanding and support um, in some universities um, when it comes to how much support these students need. So, you know, sometimes you have to wonder what welfare support looks like for people who have experienced trauma or been trafficked in the past you know um we know about the crisis of mental health in universities already for um students who haven't experienced refuge or migration or trauma in their background um to high you know with with a high level of need so what does that look like for people with high levels of need so um i i first think that they're could be a lot more done to ensure mm -hmm. that that support's already in place even before they arrive. Um, when it comes to asylum seeking young people, um, so you are at your university, um, if you're a refugee, uh, you have uh, access to student loans like anybody who has citizenship, British citizenship. So you'll effectively have the same uh, student loan as, as almost anyone else um, with citizenship and you can go through UCAS and apply that way. Um, if you're an asylum seeker, you are ineligible for student loans. Um, you can apply for a scholarship, but if you are coming from uh, great poverty, you know, you fled war um, and persecution, um, you arrive here with nothing. And then you're gonna clock up, you know, um, thousands of pounds of debt that seems like a very unstable foundation um, on which to start your life as a student. Um, so, so I've often noticed that as few scholarships uh, as there are for asylum seeking students, there are even fewer for refugee students, even with refugee status. Mm. Um, so I think a lot more can be done in the way of organizing those scholarships and welfare support, yeah, mm. as a start, yeah. 
And of course, one thing that our report should hopefully um, explore is the ways in which universities can better uh, can better support and help uh, refugees and asylum seeker students to an undergraduate education. Um, so, for example, those uh, students who do, don't necessarily um, come to apply with the deemed necessary qualifications at the time or the deemed necessary English level. Um, is there a model or are there um, current systems in place which you think show um, universities working harder to bridge that gap? Yeah, there's a, a program at um, Birkbeck called the Compass Project, I think, called the Compass Program. And that uh, includes a foundation year so that students can um, you know, develop their English and I think also develop other sort of skills, educational skills and take other classes just to give them that cushion, that foundation of a first year before they then go on to study their, their full degree, which I think and I hear um, is, is a model that's working quite well. And it makes so much sense for people to have that, that initial support to then, to then move forward with the rest of their education. Absolutely. Leila, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was really, really interesting. And um, I hope that maybe soon we can have you back on. Thank you. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you, Freddie. Leila there speaking to me about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the lives of refugees in the UK. And that's a theme that I'm sure we'll come back to in future episodes as the pandemic continues to develop. Thank you so much for listening to our slightly shorter episode today. We'll be back soon with our fourth episode. Meanwhile, I wish everyone a wonderful time in the sunshine as it begins to come out slowly but surely. If you haven't seen it already, do look at our page on Facebook for information about our upcoming brand new report that we're going to be presenting to the university soon. Thank you so much for listening.